Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And we're back with a 5 in 30 episode. Yeah, let's get stuck into it. It's good to be back. Well, the first paper we're doing today is from Forensic Science International. It's by Huenyin Tang et al. And it's called Rapinarol Metabolite Mimics a New Psychoactive Substance for Hydroxy-MET in LCMSMS. Okay, so in case you didn't know, 4-hydroxy-MET stands for 4-hydroxy-N-methyl-N-ethyl-tryptamine, which is a psilocin analogue or tryptamine analogue. And they found this drug in the urine of an elderly person, um, and I think they were under care. So obviously detecting this compound probably raised some alarm bells because it wasn't in the expected demographic to detect this compound. Yeah, this is a clinical lab in... Hong Kong, and they're doing broad drug screening, looking for prescription drugs, but also looking for NPS, obviously. They have this in the database. And they're doing a broad drug screen by LCQTOF. And they found this thing, and it seemed like normal identification criteria were pretty much met, had a good retention time match, mass error, MSMS, spectrum. The retention time was a little bit off, 0.12 minutes, they say, which works out to be about 4% out from the target retention time. I'm not sure what their criteria is, but most guidelines that would probably fall just outside of the acceptable window, but it's still very close. It's the kind of thing that can easily be missed if you're not being vigilant about it. Their um, MSMS spectral mass was really quite good as well. And when you have a look at the comparison of um, the library match and the, the patient sample, they are very close. So for some reason or other, they looked at must have looked at the patient's history, I guess. And Well, it was an unusual finding to get this NPS in this patient. So they reviewed the other drug history to see if there's there was something else. They suspected it might be an interferent from something, but they didn't know what. And they found in her history that she'd been prescribed rapinarol, which is used for Parkinson's disease. And that this interference wasn't rapinarol itself, but a metabolite of rapinarol and desproporol rapinarol they found on investigation, has the same mass and a similar structure to this 4-hydroxy-MET. Yeah, so it's an isomeric compound. And, yeah, it does have a similar structure. I mean, when you look at it, you'd, you'd say it's quite different, but all the oxygens and nitrogens are in the right place so that you get the right the same fragments, regardless of, the, of um, one's got a hydroxyl group, one's got a lactam ring. Yeah, the relative ratios of the ions were... A little bit different, but this is why these kind of things can be missed. And um, obviously, they were, you know, some clever people doing it in this case and really paying attention because you can get differences in iron ratios uh, in different types of samples depending on lots of different things. Uh, you know, if you're using a database, the ratios compared to the database in a sample that you're running today may not always be exactly the same, just because conditions are slightly different to what they were when the database was created. So. You can become a bit blasé to small differences in iron ratios. Uh, maybe you've got another, you know, little iron somewhere, but you kind of ignore it. In a QTOF MSMS spectrum, you often have quite a few irons. So, you know, one little iron, well, who really cares about it? And you can even get, you know, you can get used to retention time differences of, you know, about the order of what this is here, especially if you're doing, I mean, this is a clinical lab, but if you're doing forensic toxicology, we deal with some pretty terrible 
samples, you know, in terms of putrefactive samples and things like that, very fatty and a lot of, you know, compounds in them that will get onto a column and can affect the chromatography. And so if you get these kind of fairly small retention time shifts, you can get used to seeing them and then sort of ignore them when when they happen. Uh, and and if that was the case here, if they weren't paying such keen attention, this could have easily gone out as a false positive result. And of course, the consequences are are quite serious here. You know, this is a elderly woman living in a care home. No one is expecting her to have be taking these kind of NPS drugs or to have access to them. So then that raises questions of was she being given it by someone else, you know, against her will and those kind of things. You can start off a whole chain of investigations just with one wrong toxicology result. And and that's the thing with um, a lot of libraries is often they have the parent drug present but don't have some of the metabolites. I mean, this might have just been a, a minor metabolite, I'm not sure. So it's all down to what sort of library you've got. For example, if you're out in the, out in the woods and uh, you've got a guidebook with you, it happens to be a mythical creatures guidebook and you see an animal in a, <laughs> in a paddock you have a look at it, it's making a neighing noise, it's pretty tall, looks like you could ride it, it's got four long legs, it's got a mane, it's got a long tail. It's a unicorn, because that's what it says in your guidebook. It doesn't have any horses in there, so you can misidentify a horse as a unicorn. It doesn't have the horn, but still a 90% match. But if you had horses in there as well, you might be right. I'm not quite sure how far to take that analogy, Tim. Yeah, no, I like that analogy. I mean, imagine if you're doing, what? what's that word that you like, toxico- Vigilance. Toxicovigilance, yes. Yes, you're monitoring you know, particular populations for NPS, let's say. And so you've got a library that's just NPS because of why would you have everything else in there? You, you're only looking for NPS. You don't care about any of these prescription drugs. But that's exactly how you can get a false positive like this because you're not, you're not paying attention. You're going to be, as you say, with, the, with your guidebook, you've, you've only got unicorns in there. So you're not going to spot the horse. Yeah, we might stick with it. Seems to be working. They didn't have a reference standard for this metabolite. Reference standards for metabolites are hard to come by sometimes. Not many people have them in their stocks, and sometimes you can't really even get them. But they analysed another case which was known to be taking rapinarol, and they found this metabolite in there, and so there they had like a presumptive identification of this endospropyl rapinarol, compared that to their case in question, and yeah, that was a match. So pretty strong evidence that even though they they couldn't – categorically identify this thing, very strong evidence that this is actually just a rapinarol metabolite and not this 4-hydroxy-MET. But this does raise a really interesting question about cognitive bias. I mean, here they found something, they thought they found something, but it just didn't gel with the circumstances of the case. So that's why they went looking, I believe, why they went looking for an, another thing that it could be. If they didn't have that information, would they have gone looking for something else? I don't know. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether we should have access to certain information. Is it just irrelevant? In this case, it actually led to the correct result, having that extra information. Yeah, it's going to be the the age-old argument, I think, whether we know too much in toxicology. A lot of toxicologists argue we should know case context, but that's not a good look in terms of forensic science as a whole. Um, maybe it would be that they've, they'll have they provide the client with the result and they might come back and say, can you check that, please? And at that point, that's when they start doing some extra checking to see what's going on. Okay, let's move on to the next one. 
which is from Talanta. It's by Shang et al. And it's called a multi-extraction system with identical supported semi-liquid membrane, enhanced stability for co-extraction of acidic and basic drugs. This is a super interesting paper because it's about a way of extracting drugs from samples, which is not commonly used in forensic toxicology. I, I haven't heard of it much before. And I mean, it's a micro extraction technique and they're becoming a lot more popular. People are trying to do things on a smaller scale. It's uh, cheaper sometimes it's better for the environment it's uses less sample so this particular extraction technique here they're using is supported semi-liquid membrane extraction and they're actually using two different kinds which we'll we'll get into why they're doing that it turned into quite something something quite complex tim and i'm hoping you can explain it to me a little bit better as we move along but basically all they're doing is trying to transfer analytes from one um, medium into another, so from the sample into an, a medium that they can use on their instrumentation. Exactly, and most extraction techniques are are doing that. You work by some kind of partitioning where you've got the analytes in a particular solvent, which is your sample normally where they're starting off, and you want them to move from there into another type of solution that's easier for you to work with in your instrumentation and so on you know, liquid-liquid extraction, solid phase extraction, all of these things are working by the same basic principle, which is partitioning of an analyte from one phase into another phase. Leaving behind the rubbish and concentrating or purifying the analytes. And so it's the same principle, really, but what you have is a solid structure with a liquid membrane sort of infused into it. And that liquid membrane is some kind of organic liquid, it, it can vary a lot. And that's part of what they're talking about here is what's the best kind of membrane to use. And then so you have on one side what they call a donor solution, which is like your sample, let's say. And then you have on another side the receiving solution, which in the liquid-liquid analogy would be your organic solvent, except in this case, they're, they're both often aqueous. And the driving force for, for moving these analytes through could be a concentration gradient. It could be a pH gradient. So, for example, you, if you were extracting glycoside, an acidic drug that's got a pKa of about 5 or 6, if you were to make the donor phase acidic, then the glycoside will be neutral in that. So this is in your urine sample, for, for example. Make it acidic. The glycoside will be neutral in that sample so that it will want to pass into the organic membrane, just like in a normal liquid-liquid extraction. But then, as it's dispersing through the membrane, it comes into contact on the other side with the acceptor solution. And if that acceptor solution is basic, it's going to now ionize the glycoside. And now the glycoside will want to move into the aqueous because it's ionized. And so by adjusting the conditions, you can enrich the receiving solution in the analyte. And like in that example I just gave where you're using a pH gradient, obviously that's going to pull through acidic drugs, but not basic drugs. And so you can adjust these conditions however you like to, to pull through the things that you're after. Okay, so in this particular case, they're, they're using two of these um, membrane-type extractions. One's called LPME and one's called EME. Yeah, because the whole point here is extracting uh, different types of drugs together. You know, we've talked before about wouldn't it be great to have an extraction method that can extract every type of drug out? It's very difficult to do. Often you have to have different types of extraction method, you know, di completely different extraction methods. You'll have a liquid-liquid acidic extraction, a liquid-liquid basic extraction, for example. 
here they're trying to do it all at once. They're trying to get acids and bases out. And so they've got to use two different types of extraction because obviously the sample can only be at one pH. So you can't drive both acidic and basic drugs out of the sample. You can only right. choose one pH. But here they're using LPME, which is that, but they're also using EME, which is electromembrane extraction, which rather than having a pH difference as the driving force, has an electromagnetic potential applied. And that's the driving force. And so you can actually get acidic drugs going into one, which is driven by pH, and basic drugs going into the other, which is driven by a charge potential. Right. So they have two of these different sort of cells, each covered with a little film that's got this stuff in it that allows stuff to pass through it. And you think this must be some sort of complex device, but they've just stretched these films across the ends of pipettes that they've cut. <laughs> so it's, oh, this I is love a, it. an experimental phase, isn't it? So they're, they're using it as a, um, a proof of concept, I guess. I love reading papers where it just sounds like people are finding bits and pieces that they've had in their laboratory. Here's some old pipette tips and uh, let's, let's coat them in this stuff and we'll pop the sample in a beaker and we'll balance these pipette tips on top. It just sounds like they're sort of MacGyvering together this contraption in the lab. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Yeah, very. Oh, that would. I'm sure MacGyver's probably done this at one stage, probably where they got it from. <laughs> probably with explosive, extract some explosives or something. Probably. So they put the sample in a beaker. That was acidified. Sat the two pipettes on top so the membrane was in contact with the sample. And then one of the pipette tips contained a basic acceptor solution and the other pipette tip contained the same acidic solution as the as the sample, but they hooked this one up to the electrode to create the potential difference and that's what forced them through. And then they analysed both those solutions by LCUV and LCMSMS. They used a few different acidic and a few basic compounds as sort of model compounds here. Yeah, and so basically it didn't work too bad. No, they got good recoveries of their drugs. They tried it on spiked urine and plasma samples and the recoveries were lower than they were in just pure water, but still demonstrated the proof of concept. And actually, one of the things that they were really trying to look at here, because they're, they're not inventing this technique, they're tr more sort of trying to perfect it and advance it. One thing that they've noticed in previous models where you have two different membrane solvents, you can get diffusion into each other. So you've got these two different membranes. One, they're obviously organic liquids, even though they're infused into this solid material, they can leak out a little bit. And so you get cross-contamination between two different membranes. And so here they were trying a new membrane, which they called PPG 4000, which is um, polypropylene glycol. The 4000 refers to the molecular weight. And they found that seemed to be a lot more stable, less prone to this type of diffusion between the two extraction devices. And they did some experiments to work out, you know, what was the best donor phase, the best extraction time and so on, just uh, trying to perfect it a little bit and verified it for quantitation. It seemed to work quite well. The curves were linear. Yeah. So I love this, Pete, because we get stuck in the same old extraction techniques, you know, that we've been using for years. And sometimes we don't think outside the box and... It's good to, to just remind ourselves sometimes there's so many different types of extraction techniques out there. Don't get stuck into thinking that you can only use, you know, the traditional few extraction techniques that we use. Let's try some new things. 
Yeah, do what you want as long as you can validate it, I suppose. It'll work. Yeah, sure. I mean, you could call liquid liquid extraction. I tried writing some long words down today. Liquid liquid extraction <laughs> was going to be biphasic interfacial transfer of analytical molecules. You could give it a new acronym too. Oh, yes. We love acronyms. BPME. Yeah, BPME. Biphasic molecular extraction. Diffu- Got to have diffusion coefficient, diffusion coefficient <laughs> in there somewhere. All right. Settle down. <laughs> Let's move on to the next Let's paper. Let's move on. The next one's from Drug and Alcohol Review, and it's titled Kamini, a little recognized source of illicit opioid, a case series of 12 patients. That's by Khan et al. Yeah, this is a short article just talking about at a, an addiction medicine center. Uh, they had several patients come in who happened to be addicted to a, a Indian herbal medicine called Kamini, and it's like a commercial product that you buy over the counter, or actually buy under the counter, and it's quite common in India. And it contains opium as well as some other herbs, uh, such as ginger, clove, nutmeg, sandalwood. But the main ingredient is Papava somniferum, so the opium poppy. And each little bottle that you buy has a couple of dozen little tablets in it. And so they uh, looked at whether there were any other cases of this sort of addiction happening. So they looked back through their record and they found a total of 12 in uh, this city in Australia, in Brisbane. They were suffering from typical opioid withdrawal symptoms, which was a bit unusual for a herbal medicine that Passon was taking. Yeah, and some of them were past or current users of other drugs, including opioids, methamphetamine, alcohol, cannabis. But they didn't seem to know that Kamini contained opioids, or at least that's what they reported. So in a couple of the case studies, they mentioned that the patient's were taking these substances regularly, and they were, a lot of them were actually rideshare drivers, and they'd been told to take this medicine in order to improve their stamina. With lots of these kind of herbal medicines or traditional medicines, they say that they can do all sorts of things, and often people who take them don't actually know what's in them or, or really what effect it's having. Obviously, yeah, these people were told that it would have a certain kind of effect. Maybe some of them knew what kind of effect it was having, but even before they started taking it, I don't know. But you know, what was interesting to me was some of them had been taking it for a long time, these these Kamini balls, but there wasn't really any correlation between the length of use and the amount of use. There was one who'd been taking it for eight years who was only taking two balls a day, but one who'd been taking it for six months was taking 30 a day, which is a, a massive difference. It certainly is, and there were quite a number that were taking... 25, 30 little balls a day. And once the problem was for them, once when COVID hit, due to the lack of travel and the inability to, to I guess, smuggle this medicine into Australia, uh, the price of these little bottles went up from $110 a bottle, which is pretty pretty demanding anyway, up to $180 Australian, or $7 for each individual little tablet. So that can become quite a drain when you're using a 30 or 40 a day. Yeah, which might have precipitated all these people seeking treatment because they had to stop using and suddenly they're having withdrawal symptoms. And So the treatment regime they undertook was treatment with buprenorphine, um, injected with buprenorphine as well as buprenorphine patches. Yeah, f- fairly standard sort of opioid withdrawal treatment, which seemed to work. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that there's been a lot of talk about drug use during COVID. There's been papers coming out. I think there'll be a lot more papers coming out as well about 
drug use and you know the changes in drug use patterns during COVID and drug availability and things like that. It obviously the pandemic's affected everything, but I guess a cynical view of it would be: oh, you hear drug use habits have changed during COVID. Oh, it's because people have just got nothing else to do; they're sitting at home and taking recreational drugs. You know, but here, you know, one example in this paper was. A chef, he lost his job during the lockdown. Nothing was open. Restaurants weren't open for ages. And so he had to find work, started driving for a ride-sharing company and probably working longer hours than he had before to try and make ends meet and told by colleagues, here, take this stuff. It'll give you some more energy so you can actually work longer hours. And this was a guy who had never had any substance abuse issues before except smoking cigarettes and gets addicted to morphine, basically. Yeah, so... As you said, some of them realised, I'm sure some of them did realise it was a drug. I mean, sure, sure. you'd have to. But others um, had no idea that it contained opium at all. And so the issue with containing opium, of course, is that it also contains a little bit of codeine. And as forensic toxicologists, we all know when you see a decent-sized morphine peak with a little bit less codeine in it, that could be interpreted as a heroin use. Yeah, definitely. Because you don't always see monoacetyl morphine, which is the the classic marker of heroin use. But that's high, high morphine, low codeine. That has definitely been used in models to predict heroin use. Absolutely. Of course, it's also a pattern for opium use as well, but opium seems to be a lot less common, at least in the country we're from. Right. The next paper we're looking at is a paper by Trigg et al., and it's in Drug Testing and Analysis. It's a case report, and the title is The Alprazolam Analogue 4 Prime Chloro Desclorolprazolam Identified in Seized Capsules. Uh, so, this comes from a group of people who work in forensic chemistry and forensic toxicology, and it appears some uh, university staff as well. Um, it's quite an interesting collaboration because they use a lot of instrumentation, I'm sure not any one organization has. So, in this case here, they've found some capsules and they identified what they initially thought was alprazolam. Uh, but they noticed that it had a retention time that was slightly different to what you'd expect alprazolam to have. And they analysed it by GCMS and they got a pretty good mass spectrum, but the retention time differed by 0.3 minutes and that's a reasonable sort of difference really for GCMS, for any chromatography really. When they had a closer look at the spectra, they noticed it was um, had a few slight differences. And I mean... Got all the same masses there virtually. There might be a couple of unique ones to each, but um, the ratio of 273 iron was different. There's a little bit of difference in a smaller 137 iron, and there's a 219 iron that doesn't seem to be there in one of them. So that got them thinking what are we looking at here? And it actually got worse by um, LC QTOF, didn't it? So LC high resolution mass spec, you might think it might get better, but no, the retention time difference went down to something like 0.01 minutes, so it's virtually the same. Identical retention time to alprazolam. And the MSMS spectra, they're virtually identical, except for some slight, once again, some slight ratio changes. So this is basically what we're describing here is the same as in that first paper we were talking about, except it's reversed this time. Yeah. This time we've got a unicorn, we think it's a horse. <laughs> Exactly, but so easy to so easy to miss these small differences. Absolutely. Um, so they pummeled this poor drug. They they threw everything they had at it. They had carbon thirteen, protein NMR, uh, LCUV. What else we got? High res mass spec, X ray crystallography, X X ray crystallography, infrared. Uh, 
I remember at university taking a course in x-ray crystallography and I could not wait for it to finish. I hated doing that. So, uh, but, but someone's done that for them here, so good on them. Oh, they make it up. They make it up. There's, there's no way. You have like these darker and lighter bands on this piece of old photographic paper. How do they work out a crystal from that? Anyway, let's not worry about that. But some people will be happy to know that the UV vis spectrum, very different. Yep. So you can see that. straight away that's not the same thing on the UV. And because it, it's really – so they identify this thing as um, as the title says, 4'-chloro-deschloro-alprazolam, which has just got the chlorine in a different place. And so from an, from an MS point of view, that doesn't make much difference. But from a UV point of view, obviously, that makes a world of difference. It's interesting that this compound um, has been patented before. 4'-chloro-deschloro-alprazolam uh, uh, was formally covered by a 1984 patent on hypertensives. So who knows if it actually behaves like an like a benzodiazepine in terms of its effects, but it could be the world's first MPS antihypertensive. And not only did they have this um, weird analogue of alprazolam, which almost looked exactly like alprazolam, they also found a weird analogue of nordiazepam, which looked almost exactly like nordiazepam. So nordiazepam is used in the synthesis of alprazolam, and this is also, they postulate that it's the precursor of this New analog. Yeah, well, how do you... I mean, is that thing classed as an NPS then, Pete? Like, if this is a substance that's been found, that nordiazepam analog, I mean, it's been yeah. found in a, you know, a, a, something that's being sold as a drug, I suppose. Okay, it's a minor part of that, but sometimes you do find NPS in mixtures together. How do you know whether that's an NPS as well? Like, whether it's classed as an NPS or we just don't call that an NPS and say... No, nah, it's a, just an impurity of another MPS. Well, it's probably an MPS if it was by itself, but we don't actually know if it's got any psychoactive effect. I guess that's the that's the key aspect, isn't it? Whether it can be abused or used. But for do we do we effect. know whether this four prime alprazolam compound has psychoactive effects? No, it might not be an MPS. Might be <laughs> an hypertensive. Yeah, but that that's, that is exactly my point. Like we we just call this stuff MPS. Most of the time, we don't know whether it has any effect or not. I'm just I'm just getting at what is the definition of NPS, you know. Is it just a new thing that we find in something that's purported to cause drug effects? I think it's expanded a lot to drugs that are newly used as psychoactive substances. Like so for a while pregabalin was called an NPS in some reports because it wasn't necessarily used as a psychoactive substance up until that point. So, I don't know, I think the borderline is pretty fuzzy there. Yeah, all right. It's fuzzy. It's I'm, I'm not. Abuse, I'm not it? trying to answer that question. I'm just, um, just speculating about it. I guess the worrying thing is that um, from now on, anyone who's listening to this show and analyzes benzodiazepines, when they see an alprazolam, which you might see quite often in your casework, you have to think: Is this really alprazolam? And you might have to have a closer look at it. Yeah, it's so important to when you're doing screening. You know, pretty much everyone has like a known amount of compounds that they're looking for, compounds that are in their database or whatever. It's so important to just always keep in mind the bigger picture that there is more in your sample than just what you've got in your database. And the potential for false positives is always there. All right, let's move on to our last paper. You've got to be kidding me, Tim. <laughs> Gee, uh, you'll you'll find out why that uh, terrible joke's in there because this paper is titled "Fatal Ingestion of Taxus Bacchata English U," and that is in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, 
and it's by Brooks Lim et al. So this is a case of poisoning from English yew, which is quite a common tree or in England, obviously, but also around the world as well. And this particular incident happened in uh, British Columbia in Canada. So in this case, a 40-year-old woman was on a video chat with a friend, uh, suddenly had trouble breathing. An ambulance was called, um, but unfortunately resuscitation was unsuccessful. Uh, when they did the toxicology work, they found that there were no um, drugs, only caffeine. There was no alcohol or prescribed meds, um, no illicit drugs. And so there was a history of this person uh, foraging, so going out and getting food, herbs, that sort of thing from nature. And in the stomach contents, they found a whole lot of these prickly leaves, which were identified as English yew. And English yew contains some toxins known as a group of, as the taxines. Yeah. So one of those taxine B is the most abundant and it's the most cardiotoxic. And these alkaloids have been measured before. People have died before from English yew. So they extracted the, some compounds from the leaves using an acidic extraction and then they did like an alkaline back extraction and gave a, a yellow residue which they dissolved in methanol and ran on their instrument and they also did a acetonitrile precipitation on her blood and ran it all on an LC triple quadrupole and they detected triacetyltaxine, monoacetyltaxine, monohydroxydiacetyltaxine and taxine B which is that um, most prevalent and most cardiotoxic one. It was interesting they used a forensic botanist to identify the yew plants in the stomach, which is fair enough, I guess. Yeah, well, again, you know, good collaboration between different disciplines. You know, I guess the, the botanist looks at the plant, tells them that it belongs to this particular type of plant, and then they can go looking for oh, what are the alkaloids that have been found in that plant, and then they can actually go looking for them in the sample. So, yeah, good good chain of investigation there. They don't actually call themselves a forensic botanist. They do say forensic botany, but now I guess they can call themselves a forensic botanist because they've worked in a forensic case. A fatal dose of this English use reported to be about one gram of leaf per kilogram of body weight, and she had more than that in her stomach at autopsy. But one of the things that the authors raise here is, okay, they, she had all this sort of plant material in her stomach, and that's what triggered them to look for this kind of thing. But... If you brewed this up into a tea or something like that and strained out any actual actual plant material, there wouldn't really be any uh, signs of why they died because the symptoms that it gives, death comes on pretty quickly from taking this kind of thing and symptoms include nausea and vomiting, dizziness, seizures, mm. abdominal pain, cardiac issues, they're, but they're sort of not that specific symptoms, do you know what I mean? Like there could be lots of things that cause those things. There is a potential here for sinister administration. In this case, there weren't any suspicious circumstances. I mean, it, this, this person did have a known uh, habit for foraging in the woods to find different things. And it, it appears that's what's happened in this case and, and probably accidentally ingested the wrong thing. Yeah. And they talk about in the paper that there were there have been some cases of where a person has used English UT instead of um, their antipsychotic medication in an effort to get improved help for their condition. One reason why I'm interested in it is because it's once again showing that the use of herbal medicines shouldn't be excluded as a potential cause of um, harm because yeah sure 
things are natural doesn't mean they're not going to hurt you. But unfortunately, that is a that's a misconception that a lot of people have. Is it in the wider community who aren't toxicologists? They don't understand that because it's natural and it says medicinal on it. That it, I really want to do a podcast on herbal medicines, Tim, and I'm I'm working up to it. I'm yeah, going to you get keep there. saying that you, you're going to get there. I mean. It, Maybe toxicologists feed that um, view a little bit as well that herbal medicines really don't do anything because, well, frankly, a lot of them don't do anything. But that's They're not the good to say ones. That, the ones that yeah, don't the, do anything the are the best ones. ones don't do anything <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, the, but the but there are some that have really serious effects, maybe positive effects as well, but then sometimes really negative effects. And or sometimes it's only if you know they're mixed with other medications that you're taking and so on they can have some ne- really negative effects. So people have been practicing herbal medicine for thousands of years, but um, you know if you took some of the medicines we have now back thousands of years ago and said, look, this works better than your yew bush, um, I'm sure those <laughs> herbal medicinal, medicinal people would take take your paracetamol straight away. Okay, well that wraps up another. Five and thirty episode. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think we had a couple of mythical creatures involved. Yeah, that uh, that that analogy could catch on, Pete. See, the TF's coming up soon. You'll be there. See if uh, you can uh, get people using that analogy. See if it catches on. Yes, I'll actively try to do that. We'll be having a live podcast on Thursday lunchtime. If you're going to TF, maybe you're on the plane right now listening to the podcasts. Uh, we'll see you there. Sounds great. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.